you uh, maybe even want us to comment on things that are happening with the Southern Baptist Convention and things I probably need to write an article about and all of these other things. And some of you are just wanting to illegally explode fireworks tonight and you just like get the sermon over uh, so I can get on with being arrested. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, uh, we're going we're gonna to anchor in the Word of God and that's where we're going to camp today and, and take our time. We've been walking through the Gospel of Mark. Um, as we lead in, uh, there's an observation that some of you who grew up with siblings understand, or uh, maybe if you were poor and an only child, you understand. And it's this idea of that you get clothes, and maybe some of you like me, from garage sales or Goodwill, and you had these clothes and they became like your favorites. Like this shirt that you wore and it just, it fit great when you were eight. And it's just awesome. And you had siblings that you did not want to pass this to. I got five kids, and they uh, get clothes, and they're growing like a weed, and they will have a shirt that they will wear, and to their horror, one day they're going to have to pass that shirt to a sibling they almost don't even like. And that is like a trauma, like where a kid walks in, like your male child comes in, and that shirt that used to fit so perfect, moms, it's a crop top. And you've got to tell them, this ain't the 80s, and we're not from California. You ain't wearing no crop top, all right? Your pants are now high waters, and you don't play bluegrass. Brother, you've got to move on. And so we've got to have this conversation with our kids that you have outgrown some things, and like it or not, you need to move on. And no parent on the earth, well, shouldn't say none, you know, parents today. No parent, if they're wise and godly, would say, you know what you should do is stay small. So that you can fit that raggedy t-shirt. Like no parent that loves their kids are going to settle for them staying small. They're going to say, no, to be healthy and to grow into all that God intends for you to be. You've got to set the t-shirt aside. Matter of fact, pass it to somebody else. You have to leave your immaturity and, and, and grow up. I, I lead with that because some here, God is bringing into your story challenges, difficulties, pain, cancer, suffering, And, and he's trying to grow you strong. And, and you're holding on to your immaturity like it's your security blanket. And we can tell by the way you pray. And so this, the passage we read is Jesus betrayed, s- suffering, praying. And so here's my thought as a preacher. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell us, like, let's come into the garden where, with Jesus where more than just olive trees can grow. And let's, let's see if he doesn't compel us to become who he intended us to be. Can I pray for you? And then we're going to dive in the text.
Gracious Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Praise is befitting of you because you're the author and perfecter of our salvation. And not one detail of pain or suffering or challenge or difficulty slipped by you unnoticed. But Father, you are so wise and so good that you work all things together for our good and for your glory. For those facing immense difficulties and challenges here, I pray that you would use those things to drive them into your presence where they would be grown, where they would leave immaturity behind. God, would you teach us as your disciples to pray? Master, this is your church. Good shepherd, these are your sheep who you laid down your life for. And so come and um, pastor us, teach us, equip us for the work of the ministry that you've set out for our lives to accomplish. We can't do it without prayer. And so come now and answer these prayers by working in hearts in ways that you know are best. We love you. We praise you. It's for your beautiful name we pray these things. Everybody said. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 14. Uh, I want to reread this just a bit, just to jog your minds a bit. Got a lot of text today, so I need you to lock in, all right? Uh, There's a nursery back there. If some of you adults need to go back and take a breather, feel free. There's coffee uh, next to it. All right, 26. Uh, when they sung a hymn, and uh, we got that tradition, we sing hymns, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. This is directly fulfilled in Matthew chapter 28. Peter said to him, even though all fall away, like I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he said emphatically, I just love Peter. I just love him. I know you created the whole universe and know everything, but let me introduce you to some extra knowledge. I, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And we give Peter a hard time. He's really the spokesman here. And they all said the same. Like all of them was like, yeah, me too, right? Argue, okay. They all said the same, which I love Peter here. I'm so much better than these guys. They're all gone, but your boy is here, all right? And they're like, no, I'm in too. I'm, I'm," okay, 32. And they went to a place called uh, Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. We'll come back to that. And began to get greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father. This is an intimate term the Jews would not have used for God. Um, People talk about in English, this is closer to daddy. But if you use this while we're praying, I'm going to feel weird. All right, so... Abba, Father, all things are possible from you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not as I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Which I love. He calls him by his old name. Simon, uh, could you not watch one hour? 
watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know how to answer him. That's awesome. You ever bust your kids so bad that they don't even have an excuse? Right? It's like, Jesus shows up like the next time, and they're just like, I got nothing. All right? I'm tired. Um, they're heavy. They did not know how to answer him. 41. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping? Take your rest. It is enough. That means it's over. There's no more time here. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. That's not him fleeing. That's him getting up and going headlong Normandy Beach forward towards those that are coming to betray him. Next, 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, this is a common greeting uh, that they would have used at this time, um, basically saying teacher, and kissed him. It was not uncommon, kind of like in Europe. It makes you Americans really queasy. But in Europe, they greet their most intimate relationships with one of those air kisses, all right? And so this would have been normal for a disciple with a rabbi. And he comes up and they said, laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those drew, uh, who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. That's real funny. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him. And here's the word, fled. Like they out. Next verse, because you thought I was going to skip it, but I'm definitely not. All right? And a young man followed him, and with nothing on but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized this guy. They seized him, and he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. If you don't love the Bible, I don't know what to do with you. All right? Why is that in there? I'll tell you why it's in there. Because it happened. Mythology does not include historical eyewitness accounts like this, right? What likely happened, this is at the middle of the night after the Passover feast, homeboy hears some commotion, gets up, and usually they had like boxer brief type, they did. He didn't have time for that, which is a whole other like question about sleeping naked. And he throws on like basically a sheet and goes out to see what the whole commotion is. Maybe not the best time to come minimally dressed to Jesus, all right? everybody's getting arrested. The police are kicking down the door and somebody grabs that sheet and he just like force gumps this thing. All right? That is in your Bible because it's an eyewitness account. The Bible is not made up hundreds of years after the account. It was from people. The Gospel of Mark, as we've talked before, are the memoirs of Peter, which is why many theologians believe that the guy that ran away naked is actually John Mark himself. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, because I don't see John Mark's name here. But that's just a, that's a fun little detail. All right, so let's go back to the first passage. And let me give you a little context before we drop in. Number one, we just finished a treatment of um, the, the time of communion. So, which has unbelievable connections, Passover, and their communion meal in the upper room. So the boys, all gathered together, have this intimate 
time with Jesus, probably lasting about six hours. All right? So they're up there, so many different biblical passages that are there, and we may come back and re- give a further treatment of that passage from last week. Okay, but they're in there, you know, they're taking unleavened bread and all this stuff. Curious about this is Judas is with them, which is Jesus doing the, I guess, keep your friends closer, enemies closer. All right? Six hours, meal together, and then they leave and they begin to walk through the city. At this time, at the festival, lights in different upper rooms and different houses would have been lit up. People having conversations and laughing and eating and having a good time. They're staying up late like it's the last night of church camp. All right? And they're cutting through the city towards the east gate. So if you'll pull up the slides, um, I'm going to give you a picture of just a little bit of a visualization of one such side of the city that they could come out of. And Jesus is having this dinner party uh, with basically Benedict Arnold and his boys. And then the dinner party is over. They leave through the city, go to the next one. And this would be the East Gate. Um, it, it's actually blocked up now. You can go to it. It was blocked up in the uh, Middle Ages by, actually by Muslims. And then they put graves in front of it because a lot of prophecy and different people speculated that when Jesus enters Jerusalem at the end, he will enter back through this east gate. So they blocked it so Jesus couldn't get through. And then they put tombs in front of it because they believe a holy man would never walk through a graveyard. And so that's basically the east gate of Jerusalem. So you're standing at the Mount of Olives here looking back towards the east gate. And there's a huge valley in between you. So go to the next one. They leave the east gate and they come down into this valley. It looks like they got the rain we got, right? Um, usually it's brown and crusty, but I got the best photo possible. This could be photoshopped. I'm not sure. You come down, and uh, during the spring rains, and this occurred, as we've talked about, Passover in the spring, water would have possibly been coming from what's called the Kidron Valley. That's what this is right here. Likewise, because of the Passover lambs and the sacrifices that are taking place for what Josephus would estimate is over a million people in the city, the blood of the lambs would have mingled with the water and flowed through the Kidron Valley. And so this is their picture. Push pause. Jesus is the Lamb of God, which all of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament anticipates and points to. And he's stepping over that blood, understanding his role, who he is, what must take place. Goes past the Kidron Valley, and then he begins to ascend. Go to the next picture. Um, This is a modern picture. This would have been covered with trees. What's called the Mount of Olives. Um, Dominus Vivitas is a church there at the bottom. Um, these trees are here. You can actually go there today, and there's still olive trees that they maintained from hundreds of years, if not thousands of years ago. And um, you can go there, and you can see where they believe Jesus would have um, travailed in prayer. And at this place, Gethsemane literally just means wine or olive press. And so there's an olive press there. This is probably a private uh, garden or uh, farm or something like that of a man that was a supporter of Jesus, and he oftentimes retreat to this place. If you've been here throughout the Gospel of Mark, this isn't our first encounter with the Mount of Olives. He would go there regularly. And that's why his boy Judas would know this is the dive. This is the spot. This is the hideout. This is the, he knows the password to the treehouse, right? Like, there, this is a frequented place for Jesus where he exits the city and he looks over the city and he prays for it. And so he goes there 
What's fascinating about this, Jacob, is that this is actually, he leaves the east gate, and he goes to the Kidron Valley, and he goes up into the Mount of Olives, is the exact same path that King David took when he fled his son Absalom, barefoot and weeping because of betrayal. He takes the same path, and he leaves the city, and he goes to a place of Gethsemane, which is an olive press. See, Jesus is going to enter the wine press of suffering alone and drink what is called the cup of wrath that is due as a penalty for your sin. We may not be familiar with this language of cup of wrath. Uh, go to the next passage. I want to give you a little bit of a, a context for what we're going to look at today. In Jeremiah 25, um, 15 through 16, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. And make all the nations whom I send you to drink it. And you shall drink it and stagger and be crazed because of the sword. That's a judgment language that I'm sending them on them. Jesus is drinking the judgment for sin. Uh, Psalm 75, same, same use of this language. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. It's, I guess that's like the Bible saying it's the bartender's really good. I don't know what to do with that. Um, and he pours it out from it, and all the, look who drinks it, the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. That's like, that's, all, that's bottoms up. And it's saying, you know who deserves that cup? The wicked. Not the only sinless man that's ever lived. Wicked people. You know, like you. Then, but Revelation 14, 10, and he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength. Like, they're not watering it down. No chasers. James on, shaken, not stirred. Like, full content. Drink the full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the, back to Jesus' title, as the Lamb. The cup is a picture of hell, of God's judgment, of his vengeance against sin. And Jesus is directly referencing the turmoil coming into his soul from this cup. Isn't that wild? Now, so that's the context. Let's talk about the characters for a minute. We got the disciples coming in with full bellies. All right? We've got the elders and chief priests uh, circling the wagons on the death squad that they're trying to send to him. Then we have um, Judas getting his chapstick and his bank account ready. And then we have Jesus praying. And that's where we're at. 27 through 31, or 26 through 31, comes into this language in verse 27. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. All fall. You'll fall. The word here in Greek is skandalizo. It's where we get the word scandal. It's like, you are going to epically blow it. Like, you're, you're I mean, it's going to be, Peter is going to fall spectacularly. And what's going to make it even more epic is the fact that he thinks on his own strength he's not going to. It's like that person when they begin to fall and you're like, oh, they're going to catch it. Nope, they hit twice as hard. 
He says you're all going to fall. So here's the thing. Quote, all the motivational posters you want, right? Believe in yourself. That's our culture. Every Disney movie, just believe in yourself. Pump that up. Get that ego, that self-esteem all the way to the top and believe in yourself. Wear all the self-congratulating t-shirts and get self-affirming tattoos that you want. But let me tell you the truth. Without God's grace, none of us stand. Without God's grace, none of us are kept from blowing it in epic proportions. And go ahead. The person in here who has never completely blown it, throw the first stone right at Peter. Or how about this? Is there not a Christian in here could look at Peter and say, I get it. Like, I get it. Without grace, you're not standing. Here's what's wild to me. Jesus clearly here in this passage knows that his inner circle is going to cut tail and run and he still does communion with them for six hours. Like, have you ever realized how unique a friend Jesus is? Have you ever sang the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus? And, and got it. Jesus' friendship makes us better men, better women, better friends. You know how I know that? What's unbelievable about this? Same guy, Peter, Acts chapter 5, he gets thrown in jail, gets in all kinds of trouble for Jesus' sake, gets out of jail. They leave jail in Acts chapter 5, and they rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer embarrassment and shame for the name of Jesus. He goes from full cowardly lion to so bold that he preaches and is like, you can't do nothing to me. Like, what takes someone from a coward like he is in this passage and makes him into someone so bold and so anchored in Jesus that he rejoices that he gets to be counted worthy to suffer? Like, come on, give me some clues on that. That he's, he's giddy that he got counted. That God thought, I know Peter can handle this suffering. I'm going to let it come to him. And it's going to accomplish in Peter joy. He's going to be giddy like he just got the lottery because he got thrown in jail. That's wild to me. Only the gospel with a friend like Jesus makes us like that. Because let's be honest, in this passage and in this room, some of you may never recover from your failures. Like Judah, and like others that have been in this room, you may never recover from your failures. We all know people that because this happened to them as a kid, they live that way. Because they did this, and it was so public, and now I don't even understand what kids have to go through today. It's posted on the internet forever, I guess. It's like God, when he has to judge us, just Googles it, you know? Like, I don't know. And because it, you failed so epically, 
There's things you won't do. You live constantly in response to your biggest failures, not to Jesus' biggest victory. And that kind of existence, as we'll see in Judas, is suicidal. Christians, by the grace of God and by the gospel, are uniquely made better by their biggest failures. Christians are uniquely, by the gospel and by grace, made better by their biggest failures. Judas will never recover from the shame, but Peter will. I don't know how encouraging this is to you, but I want to be honest with you. One day, kids, listen to me. One day you're going to blow it. You're going to screw up. I don't care whose kids you are. My kids, your kids, everybody's kids. You're going to blow it one day. You're going to go through something unbelievably painful. You're going to fail in a way that goes to the core of who you are. I was talking with a brother uh, last week who just went through a like, just traumatic divorce and um, another state. And, and um, he just talked about the, the, the ongoing drama that he's in and the attack on his identity. It feels like it's, 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 it gets down to this, the very core of who he is. Like his soul is like a raw nerve that every time he has to deal with it, it just touches that nerve. And it hurts. And he was telling me um, just about this. And we were discussing how pain and suffering introduces you to you. Pain and suffering introduces you to you. And he told me, it's either in that place Jesus is enough for me or he's not. In the place where it looks like I've completely ruined my life. I am either saying to the world, Jesus is enough, or I'm running. Now, you may, you may have played with the Bible before, and you realize that there's other accounts of this betrayal by Peter and Peter's account and um, different things. And you'll read in Luke where it says, Jesus says to Peter, Satan wanted to like sift you uh, like wheat. But I, Jesus, have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you may have read that before. And then you look at this denial that's coming down the pipe and you're saying, wait, but Peter, Peter did fail. Didn't he? Like, so Jesus prayed that his faith wouldn't fail, but it but looks like he blows it right here. So what's, what's going on here? And so I would just push this into your lap the best way I possibly could. Jesus clearly does not see Peter's failure in the garden as a final and ultimate failure. His story does not end with his failure. His sin, man, this is good, listen to me. His sin is not greater than his Savior, even if his sin is greater than him. Jesus just didn't see this failure as the end of his story. And he 
didn't see it as bigger than Jesus' blood. This is the best news. That in Christ, our biggest failure does not get the last word. And if you take nothing else from the sermon, um, take that home and chew on that this week. And the moment that you're in the shower and you think back 10, 15 years ago when you did that one thing that makes you so cringe that you just hate yourself, in that moment, trust the gospel. Okay, uh, next passage, 32, all right? We're, we're cooking here, all right? And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Anybody ever t- try to tell a toddler to sit somewhere? That's what we're looking at here. Sit here. Dad's going to go over here and pray. Next thing you know, there's an Amber Alert. Cops are involved. And the mom at Walmart is saying, could someone come get your kid? So 33. And he took with him. So the other disciples are left probably to check their iPhones or whatever. But then he's going to take an inner circle of disciples. Peter, James, and John. Two of these are the sons of thunder. By the way, what's awesome about this passage These are the cats that were like, hey, Jesus, in glory, can I sit on your left and right? But they can't sit with him for one hour and pray. Welcome to church. Jesus, give me all the the position, all the authority, all the power. Hey, why don't you come pray for me for, uh, you know, like an hour. So, oh, look at the time. Got Got things to do. We want all the glory, all the position, all the power. We don't want to labor in prayer. It's funny, funny about that. And he took him, Peter, James, John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even, look at what your Bible says, to death. He is drinking death. He's drinking the curse. He is drinking the wrath of God. Remain here. Here's his command to you, disciples. Remain here. Watch. And he's going to invite them to pray. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are from me, yet not as I will, but what you will. And he found them sleeping. So, let me make a note here. And, and tell me if I'm wrong here. Jesus could have done this by himself. Like there's, I mean, even with inviting them, what the mess are they contributing to this prayer meeting? Virtually nothing. Right? Like it's minimal contributions from his closest boys. He could have done this solo, but he invites them within an earshot And he includes us in this ordained gathering that he's orchestrated. And he wants our eyeballs and our ears and our hearts right here in the garden. Because there's something he wants us to take from it. So listen. Here's at least one thing we can take from what Jesus says. If you do not watch and pray you will be swept away by Jesus-denying temptation. If you do not pray, 
you will be swept away with Jesus denying temptation. Here's another way to say it. You're going to lose, and you're going to lose big without prayer. And I feel like I'm swimming upstream here because I don't believe that as a church culture, we believe that. We would pray differently if we believed that. Right? We believe our strategies is going to reach La Plata County in Colorado. What a joke. Or how good the preacher is. Right? Don't laugh at that. We think, oh, you know what? We need more money. If we only had $3 million, we could evangelize the heathen of Durango. Right? We don't believe that if we prayed to the Lord of the harvest, saying the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, Give us laborers out of the harvest to reach the harvest that God will answer that prayer even though it's a promise. Give us the millions. Give us bigger buildings. Can we get a Ferris wheel and some strategy? But nobody wants to pray. And we enter into unique American temptations and are swept away in Jesus denying Christianity that is powerless to push back the kingdom of darkness. Without prayer, you forfeit church, success even being an option. It's not an additive, it's essential. Critical, irreplaceable. Do you see your prayer life the way Jesus sees your prayer life? Because see, we could talk a big game of spirituality and commitment just like Peter, but make no plans to pray and thus no plans to win. We are sleeping through the prayer meeting and then surprised when we're caught off guard by temptation and sin and and suffering. I think that we lack a wartime mentality that sees this communication with our general as irreplaceable. Jesus comes in and and at the time where his soul is sorrowful, even unto death, he's communing with the Father. And if you're a Christian here and you call him your master, when you suffer, that's your habit. My soul is sorrowful even to death. By the way, that idea, the fact that Jesus is suffering like this, refutes the idea that if you simply knew the future, you knew the next five years of your life, ten years of life, that it wouldn't be hard if you just knew what was coming. Jesus knew what was coming. Still hard. Right? The picture here of Jesus, um, Luke would describe as one that was 
in so much turmoil of soul that he's actually sweating drops of blood. Um, this is called medically hematohydrosis, where stress of the soul begins to cause the body and the capillaries to explode, and he begins to sweat blood. I don't know what your picture um, from Christian media is of this, but this is Jesus writhing in pain, maybe screaming, crying out. He's stressed to the gills. His soul is heavy. Observe, what, have, what is his friends doing? They're sleeping. He's been in the frying pan, and now he's going into the fire. And he's so sorrowful that he could die. And his closest friends are asleep at the will. Doesn't that sting a little bit more? Whatever the knife is, doesn't it turn it? And I get it. Listen, they just had, they just had a big meal, unleavened bread. They went to Texas Roadhouse and ate too many of the rolls. It's like those Olive Garden breadsticks. If I had to drink and drive or breadstick at Olive Garden and drive, I'm much more dangerous with the sugar. Like, I'll just fall asleep driving with those breadsticks. I get it. Right? Like, do, do you notice that throughout this passage, he only takes a break from the work of prayer to check on them? That's it. He only takes a break from the work of prayer to check on them and to give them more chances to fail him. Well, if that sounds like your walk with Jesus, but it's very similar to mine. Right? He interrupts. Let me say it like this. He is. He sandwiches his compassion with more compassion. He's only interrupted by concern for them. An opportunity to give them another chance. Verse 36 is challenging. It says, if possible, Jesus prays, if possible, take this cup from me. A lot of people struggle with what to do with this. I think that this is an unbelievable unveiling that is helpful for us. What I mean by that is, Jesus is teaching us here that sure, all things are possible for God, but not all things are good or beneficial or glorious. See, the cup could have been taken from him and all of humanity could have been damned. Like, that's an option, right? Like, that option's on the table. No cup of wrath. Why don't you drink that down, wicked people? Like, that's, that's there. But Jesus is teaching us and revealing to us that there is one way of salvation alone. That God is redeeming through the cross alone. There's no other way. As painful, as terrible, as messed up as it is, he's got to walk this path. There's one way. Side note. Take this, Christian, and learn from your master. There are less painful things possible for God to do in your life, but if he did them, they would not be for your good, and they would not be best, and they would not be for his glory. Jesus, chief among us, is teaching us that the most glorious, the best way, the good way, the righteous way is not the way that is painless. 
There's a less painful way. It's just not good. But the moment we get a little pain in our lives, we're like, why, God? God's like, I only told you a thousand times in Scripture. This works for you an eternal weight of glory. It makes you something that pleasure will never make you. Listen, I wish I got six-pack abs and big muscles from sitting on my couch and eating donuts. Like, but everybody here knows you got to do cardio. I think that's what the verse translates into. I don't, you know, I don't know. All right? There's one way. It's, it's not a... Jesus is trying to rescue us from a painless existence that would use our time here on earth to minimally glorify Him and achieve for ourselves the greatest good that He intends for our existence. He's that good. He's that glorious. He's that wise. And there's something here that I, I think needs, needs pointed out as well. Is that every one of Jesus' closest friends fail Him. Everyone of Jesus' closest friends fail. Listen, there are other people that are, that are not even good friends to you. They're fair weather fans. Like when it hits the fan, they're gone. Okay? They're only cool with you as long as it's popular and advantageous for them. There's fair weather fan, uh, friends in your life. We're not even talking about that. We're talking about His closest circle left him hanging. And I get why for some people in here, church is crazy hard. Because you've come to church, and even people calling themselves Christians who are not Jesus and not perfect have failed you. And this whole thing about trusting people again is tough. And listen, I'm not the only one in here. I don't believe this. I'm not the only one that as a Christian had somebody say, hey man, I need you to pray for me. And I did not write that junk down. I did not pray for them in the moment, and I completely whiffed on that. Anybody? Do you realize that the commitment to pray for somebody is to say, I'm here to help you carry this burden. I'm entering into the fray with you. Your loss is my loss. Your victory is my victory. Committing to link together with someone in prayer is a sacred privilege. But, like, I've said I'm going to pray for people and just whiffed. Come on now. Like, well-meaning, holy, actual Christian people are going to fail you at some point. Have you ever needed people the most, and they showed up around you the least? Have you ever felt the pain of being alone when you knew that you shouldn't be alone? Carried something by yourself that was, you knew was too heavy for you to carry alone? And we get spiritual. Just me and God. Well, God said in his word, you need people. Like, you need a church. So your spirituality is contradicting the Bible. Like, you got to have people. you got to have a tribe. But you're just alone, and you just... If it was strangers that abandoned Jesus, wouldn't that have felt, oh, it's not, not a big deal. They don't even know me. But the fact that it's them... That shaded out on him, doesn't it feel different? What about the divorce? What about the family reunion? What about the sister, the brother, the parent? 
Okay. We are enabled by grace to overcome others defecting from us in our hour of need. Jesus overcomes their defection. And I think he enables us that when other people defect from us, we're able to overcome it. When other people betray us, fail us, shade out on us, in a moment of weakness, they just don't show up, they don't have our back, they're not in the, they leave the foxhole, they're not in the foxhole with us. He allows us by grace to overcome that defection. I would even go further. And we are kept by grace from that defection and betrayal by people being used to cause us to ultimately and finally ourselves defect from Christ. That's awesome. Here's the thing. Facing the scariest, I mean, argue this. Police are rolling up at the door, ready to kick the door. The scariest moment maybe of the disciples' whole existence, besides that thing that happened on the boat. Right? Scariest moment, most confusing. They got no idea what's going on here and how this fits. Of course, he's only told them like every other chapter of Mark, but we'll give them some grace. Confused, all right? Most dangerous. Somebody about to get it, lose an ear over this ordeal, all right? Uh, most heartbreaking moment that's maybe happened in their whole entire life. This chapter is, I mean, just pinnacle of stress. Would you agree? Um, and they missed the chance to be ready for it by being prayed up. And so they're going to be swept away by temptation. 